Welcome to CAA Live, the Council of American Ambassadors Foreign Affairs Podcast. My name is Keisha King, and I am the Council's Communications Manager. This episode features a presentation and Q&A session on U.S.-Turkey relations with Dr. Nick Danforth at the Council's Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference on November 7, 2018. This session was moderated by CAA member Ambassador Stuart Bernstein. Enjoy. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm very, I just met Nick, and, uh, but I was excited because many, many years ago, when I was in high school, I got the Danforth Foundation Award for Leadership and Citizenship. And his ancestors, he goes way back with the Danforth family, quite a unique family. But this young man is quite unique because at his young age, he's become quite an authority on, on uh, Turkey. He's a graduate of Yale University. Uh, he got his BA, he got his master's at Georgetown. He's written articles for the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and foreign affairs. And uh, he just got back, he's hot off the press, just got back two days ago from, uh, from Turkey. And so we're looking for some inside scoop and, uh, but let me, let me also suggest this, because something that is almost uh, hard to fathom, how did Erdogan get into the power and the position he is after this amazing Muslim country with such a dynamic democracy and freedom of the press and all that? That might be one thing I'd love you to see here you touch on. And of course, the hottest thing is uh, what the hell is going on? How the hell? I mean, have you listened to any tapes? Has Turkey really uh, did they did this? They really cut this guy up in the embassy. Give us some inside All scoop, right. Nick Danforth. Right. Thank you so much. I was given. I was told to speak for ten to fifteen minutes and cover the U.S.-Turkish relationship. Now we have the history of the Turkish Republic <laughs> on the table and the Khashoggi incident. So I'll, so I'll touch on some of this in my remarks now and then hopefully we can get to more of it in the questions. Uh, it's, it's always exciting to be able to talk about U.S.-Turkish relations. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult in part because, well, as we've seen, there's so much to say uh, and by and large, none of it's good. So my thought was that I'd go on, I'd offer a little background on how U.S.-Turkish relations got to be so bad, uh, as bad as they are right now. And it touches on the question of how Erdogan came to power uh, and what the sources of his support really are. Uh, and then we can get into some of the specifics. Certainly want to talk about Khashoggi during the question and answer period. Um, I was, as you mentioned, recently in Turkey. Uh, it was uh, the last couple weeks, the last month, let's say, about as good as U.S.-Turkish relations have gotten in the past couple years. And when thinking about why that was, I got even more discouraged. Because when you think about what the two big good news stories coming out of Turkey were recently, the first one was the release of Pastor Andrew Brunson, uh, an innocent American who was jailed for two years on frankly absurd charges. Uh, the good news is that he was released. The bad news is this serves as a reminder that there was an innocent American in jail for two years in Turkey. It was only released as the result of an intense uh, economic pressure put on the Turkish government at a moment when it was uniquely weak on account of its currency crisis. 
Uh, and while Brunson has been released, there are still other Americans in jail, and there are three Foreign Service nationals uh, that were working at the State Department that are currently in jail. We hope the U.S. government is going to do more to get them out, but it's not clear uh, with Brunson released that that remains a focus. Uh, and then, of course, the other piece of good news from Turkey's point of view is that there was a journalist murdered in Istanbul, and Turkey wasn't the one who did it. And that's, that's sort of where things are with Turkey right now. Meanwhile, the story that wasn't even, um, wasn't even being covered in the United States that was getting a lot of attention in Turkey amidst Khashoggi and amidst the Andrew Brunson case uh, was President Erdogan threatening to launch a military operation against Syrian Kurds east of the Euphrates River uh, with whom United States, 2000 United States Special Forces are currently embedded. Uh, and this, you know, only recently we've seen the result of this is that Turkey is now shelling Syrian Kurdish positions across its border. Uh, in response to this shelling, the United States felt compelled to send U.S. troops to show the flag on the Turkish-Syrian border. Uh, Turkey stopped shelling when the United States troops were there. Then when they left, it continued shelling. Uh, and no one, is, no one is seriously alarmed that there's going to be a direct clash between U.S. and Turkish forces. But again, at the point where you have to make that caveat, it's a really bad, bad scene. And so how did things get to this point? That's, I think, the big question that's been on everyone's mind in that, in, in part because Erdogan is such a colorful personality, in part because there are so many short-term crises, we get caught up in those and don't take, don't step back and look at how we got to this point. Uh, and I'd start with the biggest factor, something that's maybe so obvious that we don't notice it, is the end of the Cold War. At the time the Cold War ended, there were actually a number of analysts who said that with the Soviet threat uh, no longer there to unite the United States and Turkey, uh, the alliance was going to begin to fray. And for the first 20 years or so, uh, that people kind of thought they'd been foolish to predict that. And it was only, I think, belatedly in the face of um, new crises that the lack of this glue, the lack of this shared strategic vision uh, really showed. I come at this from the perspective of a historian. Uh, I was, for the last 15 years since Erdogan came to power, whenever there's been a crisis, people have been saying, this is as bad as US-Turkish relations have ever been. And my instinct as a historian was always to push back and say, you know, that's not the case. They were never as good as we remember. Even in the golden age of the 1950s, uh, there were tensions. In uh, 1974, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus, uh, risk of war with another NATO ally, subsequent US arms embargo on Turkey. Uh, things were always very tense. And yet it's only in the last two years that, you know, for the first time, I and I think a lot of other historians have started saying, no, this really is as bad as they've ever been. And part of the reason is that you no longer have the Cold War, you no longer have the Soviet Union, to cause both sides to look past uh, their interests, or look past their disagreements to broader interests. Uh, I just say a sideline on the subject of democracy, you know, you also, Turkey was not a democracy when the U.S.-Turkish alliance began. Uh, if you look at the, um, the Truman speech to Congress that launched the Truman Doctrine, he's actually very careful. He describes Greece as an imperfect democracy, and he describes Turkey as a free country fighting against communism. And that, you know, Turkish democracy, again, may be worse now than it's ever been in the past, but at various points in the past, it was pretty bad. After the 1980 coup, 
for example, that there was no meaningful democracy in Turkey to speak of. Again, this wasn't an issue because of the Cold War framework. Uh, the other way in which the end of the Cold War has really changed things, I think people tend to overlook, is how it affected the Kurdish issue. Uh, if the Soviet Union was an existential threat to Turkey, uh, the Kurds were an even more existential threat, Kurdish separatism. Uh, and what happened during the Cold War, of course, that was something that brought the United States and Turkey together. You had a Marxist uh, guerrilla terrorist group at war with a NATO ally. The United States stood by Turkey very firmly, uh, more firmly than we should have, given how Turkey was fighting that war. Uh, and it was a source of common ground. With the end of the Cold War, suddenly in the, uh, the first Gulf War, you suddenly had the United States working with Iraqi Kurds against Saddam Hussein. And this, in ways that, again, took a lot longer for people to notice, uh, gave rise to some very intense, uh, get, planted the seeds of the current anti-Americanism in Turkey, and gave rise to a very intense and long-standing conspiratorial belief that the United States was working with the Kurds, both in Iraq and in Turkey, in order to create an independent Kurdistan and undermine the Turkish state. Uh, and the intensity of this belief across Turkey during the 1990s and the 2000s was remarkable. And the fact that now, what is, was once uh, a Turkish paranoid fever dream has now, in a sense, become true in Syria is, I think, one of the most damaging possible things that could have happened to the relationship. Uh, it's striking, you know, in the last four years, the United States has actually been providing, has begun providing direct military aid to an organization that's been fighting a very ugly war with the Turkish state for four decades. What's remarkable is in spite of this, the jump in anti-Americanism in Turkey when measured by polls has been a relatively low 10%. Why is that? Because even before we started supporting the Syrian Kurds, even, everyone in Turkey already thought we were doing it. And so the mystery to me in trying to understand anti-Americanism in Turkey is not why people in Turkey are anti-American now that we're actually supporting a Kurdish group at war with the Turkish state. It's why everyone in Turkey thought we were already supporting them when we actually weren't. This brings me to my third point about the breakdown of the US-Turkish relationship, which is that I, people, I think, in the news see snippets of Erdogan's anti-American rhetoric, uh, the intensely conspiratorial claims that he makes. Uh, he's a very good politician. This is also partly how he's managed to bring down Turkish democracy. Uh, he's very good at using this rhetoric to whip up his base. But what I think sometimes gets lost is that he also believes very deeply, and the people around him believe very deeply, many of the most intensely anti-American conspiracy theories that they promote. And I think everyone that I've talked to in Turkey is firmly convinced that Erdogan thinks that the United States was directly involved in the 1916 coup attempt uh, that tried to bring down his government and you know, personally kill him. Uh, and that, that is also something hard for the relationship to recover from. There's been a crisis now over Turkey's desire to buy Russian S-400 um, air defense missiles. This is in part a geopolitical ploy. This is in part an attempt to show, uh, improve relations with Russia, um, put pressure on the United States. But also, according to people in Ankara, this reflects Erdogan's very sincere belief that uh, at some point in the future, he could have NATO planes coming to kill him, and he needs Russian missiles to defend himself from them. And I guess I'd add, when you think about how Erdogan's handled something like the Khashoggi incident, um, or the arrest of Pastor Brunson, 
you know, people have presented both of these, his arrest of the pastor, his attempt to capitalize on Khashoggi's killing by embarrassing the Saudi government, uh, as sort of opportunistic efforts on his part to gain concessions uh, from the United States through hostage diplomacy, from uh, the Saudi government by blackmailing them over the Khashoggi tapes. And at the same time, people have warned, you know, in doing this, he risks alienating the United States, uh, and he risks making a lifelong enemy of MBS. And I think seen from Erdogan's point of view, it's worth noting that I think he comes at both of these from the assumption that he already, the United States is already working to destroy him. MBS is already his lifelong enemy. Uh, he takes his enemy's enmity for granted, and he sees, I think, taking Americans hostage uh, and trying to embarrass MBS is actually showing that he's willing to stand up to an assault from an existing enemy. And that he sees the risk, both in dealing with the United States and in dealing with uh, Saudi Arabia uh, actually is in appearing weak and appearing that he's not willing to stand up to uh, his enemy's attack. And I think this uh, paranoid defensiveness is, is going to be a major complicating factor in dealing with Turkey moving forward. Now this, and I'll conclude here, begs the final question, all right, Erdogan's deeply convinced of these conspiracy theories. His public, his voters, even his opponents are deeply convinced of these conspiracy theories. Why do they have so much resonance? Uh, and I think what you see in Turkey now is the confluence of two very deep anti-Western strains of thinking. Uh, you have Erdogan's Islamism, which has been much discussed, and I think people are aware of something of the Islamist worldview and its anti-Westernism. Uh, and at the same time, you also have a very deep-rooted uh, anti-Western, anti-imperialist Turkish nationalism, which goes back to the First World War, to Turkey's efforts to you know, either maintain or win its independence in the face of a sustained attack from you know, Britain, France, Greece, uh, European imperial powers, which left in, from the time of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk uh, a, deep, a deep suspicion of the West that went along with cultural Westernization. And what you see is this has changed, the target of this anti-Western, anti-imperial hostility has changed over the years. In the aftermath of World War I, it was directed at Britain and France. Then with the Cold War and with America's help, it was redirected at the Soviet Union, which was the new imperial power, the new threat to Turkey, both from the North and increasingly from the South. And then during the course of uh, the Cold War, and especially after the Cold War, this same nationalist anti-imperialism got redirected at the United States. And now you're in the unique situation where Erdogan, feeling besieged, has been able to make common cause with both right-wing but non-Islamist nationalists uh, and a lot of secular, even in some cases very left-wing nationalists, all of whom see both the Kurds and the United States as the primary threats to their country. Uh, and as, you know, as Erdogan has become the state, I think it's been very easy for him to combine threats to himself, threats to his personal power, uh, and threats to the Turkish government. Uh, when you have a Marxist Kurdish organization that Turkey is at war with, he can bring his Islamist constituents and his nationalist constituents together in fighting the Kurds uh, and in resisting American, what increasingly everyone in Turkey sees as American aggression. And so this, Amidst all the crises that we're facing and that we will continue to talk about, 
looking at a historical perspective, I think sometimes people do this to be to try to find some grounds for optimism. Here, I think the historical perspective uh, provides even further grounds for pessimism. So on that note. How, how does he arrest these reporters and get away with that? And then some Khashoggi stuff, or maybe you all will. Right. Uh, well, and this, I mean, we it's. We want some scoop, man. We want right, some right, scoop. Right, right, okay. No, it's been fascinating to see with the Khashoggi stuff, uh, both, right, Erdogan's ability to pose as a defender of press freedom has been remarkable. And also for people following the Turkish press, some of the Turkish government news outlets, which have been taken seriously by the New York Times, is really mind-boggling when you see the kind of conspiracy theories that these, um, these papers usually peddle. But, and that's, you know, I mean, um, it is a tribute to how badly the Saudi government messed this up that they've managed to make Turkey look credible by comparison. Uh, and that as ridiculous as the stories, some of the stories that Turkey has been putting out have been, you know, when you're left with the fact that this man walked into the Saudi embassy, or walked into the Saudi consulate and didn't come out, uh, it doesn't matter how implausible what Turkey says is, it doesn't matter how many journalists the Turkish government has arrested, Saudi is gonna look bad by comparison, uh, and the people in Washington that you see trying to keep the focus on Turkey um, look like relatively desperate Saudi apologists. Um, I did, you know, I, that said, Turkey has kind of come to the end of what was a very successful PR campaign with very little to show for it. You know, I think they, at first when no one knew what happened, Turkey's selective leaking of information was very effective. It then got to the point where I think there were so many contradictory stories, there were so many rumors that Turkey had put out, that even though everyone was still convinced that Saudi had, was ultimately responsible, you needed something more substantial from Turkey in order to really drive this point home. Um, I did, I mean, I tallied up, it's a you know, sort of macabre exercise, but the number of different explanations Turkey has put forward for what happened. First, that Khashoggi was chopped up with a bone saw and taken out of the country in diplomatic pouches. Uh, now they're saying that he was dissolved in acid. Uh, there's also that he was buried in the Belgrade forest outside of Istanbul. There was also the claim that he was buried in the garden of the Saudi embassy. And then something I just heard last night for the first time, and I don't entirely understand, that he was hidden inside the uh, consulate's skylight. And so by all accounts, the Turkish government has the tapes. They've played them to the United States, They've played them to US intelligence. Uh, and they, so right, the story we were talking Where'd about. Where did they the, get the tapes? Well, right, so obviously they had this story about how it was because Khashoggi had an Apple Watch on and they were recording through his Apple Watch because they haven't been able to quite come out and say they were bugging the Saudi consulate. But <laughs> I think everyone realizes that's what they were doing. And if anything, people have said it's ridiculous that the Saudi government didn't realize that Turkey was obviously bugging their consulate. And that that's where the incompetence on the Saudi side comes in. Um, I did, this is as close as I have to an inside scoop, met with one of the people who's been the inside government source for all of the articles. He was saying that they, their plan is they've shared the intelligence with the United States. They, I think we're hoping that that would compel the United States to take more forceful action. They'll probably reevaluate that effort in response to the outcome of last night's elections. Uh, and that, I mean, they're in a difficult situation because they want to pressure the United States to take a much tougher stance against Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, but they also don't want to be in a position where they go out too far ahead of the United States. They release this embarrassing information, and then nothing comes of it, and they look weaker than if they just kept quiet. And so I think that's where, so far, playing the tapes in private has been their MO. I think the next step they've been hinting at is that they'd bring, you know, they'd get David Ignatius to come and have him listen to the tapes, and he'd write an article saying, I've heard them, they're really bad. <laughs> And that, you know, take, take some questions from the audience. At this point during the session, CAA alumni fellow Caitlin Quinn asked Dr. Danforth if he could share his predictions on Turkey's economy given its current monetary crisis. No. I, I mean, no, this, the, recent, the focus on economics has made me aware of how little uh, I'm able to predict economic crises. People have been saying that a disaster is coming for seven or eight years now. So far, Turkey consistently uh, escaped that disaster. It does seem like now it's finally in the works. But again, there, there are people who know way more about economics than I do who have radically different uh, opinions on this. What I would say about the political fallout of an economic disaster is that as bad as it might get, the idea that this would be something that could bring down Erdogan I think is unrealistic. I think he's gotten to the point, I mean, if, you know, and people in Turkey are starting to talk about Venezuela as a possible outcome, and when Turkey was consulting with uh, Venezuelan experts about economic management, people in Turkey really freaked out. There's a sense that you know, things could get very bad, the crisis could reach remarkable uh, proportions, Erdogan has enough power that he could bring the country down with him before he gave it up, and, th and that he would be willing to do that. At this point during the session, CAA member Ambassador Timothy Towell asked a question about Fatullah Gulen, a Turkish preacher living in exile in the United States. Right. So we talked about three of the major crises, I think, in U.S.-Turkish relations. This is the fourth big one. Uh, there's a reclusive preacher living in exile in Pennsylvania who was probably deeply involved in an attempt to bring down the Turkish government and kill Erdogan. That is inevitably going to be a huge issue for U.S.-Turkish relations, uh, especially when coupled with the fact that the Turkish government has so politicized this case, uh, has made, well, has so thoroughly destroyed its judiciary that it's no longer capable of putting together what would ideally be, you know, a difficult but manageable legal case for Gulen's extradition. So Gulen led a movement, um, kind of moderate, uh, pro-Western, scientifically inspired, but also deeply bizarre Islam that worked very closely with Erdogan when they had a common cause in bringing down the Turkish military in establishing a more Islamist or pro-Islamic democracy. Uh, they had a falling out less because their ideologies were that different uh, than simply as a matter of power. Uh, Gulen thought that through his support for Erdogan and through his very strategic positioning of members of his organization, members of his movement, in the Turkish judiciary and in the Turkish military, that even as Erdogan led the government, he would be able to control the direction of the country. Uh, and so this, in 2013, the t um, members of the Turkish judiciary associated with Gulen launched a corruption um, 
co corruption investigation against high-ranking AKP members, including members of Erdogan's family. Uh, undoubtedly, the evidence they were bringing up was accurate. They, Erdogan was involved in, his administration was involved in massive corruption. Uh, Erdogan presented this Gulenist investigation as a coup attempt. Most people in the country were sympathetic. Uh, incidentally, all the secular people who opposed Erdogan were still sympathetic to Erdogan on this because they hated the Gulen movement even more than they hated Erdogan. Uh, and when you subsequently then in the summer of 2016 had members of the same organization maybe spearheading, maybe simply making up a large part of the participation in a coup attempt, this you know, it provoked a, uh, understandable backlash from Erdogan, but in the context, you know, quickly spiraled into you know, a somewhat Stalinist purge of not just the military, which I think people understood that after a coup attempt you'd purge the military, but also civil society, the judiciary, academics, uh, professors, high school teachers in small town universities in eastern Turkey have been fired as a result of this. The problem is everyone in Turkey knows Gulen was involved in the coup attempt. Uh, no one in Turkey has seriously taken on the challenge of what kind of evidence you would have to give to a U.S. court to get him extradited. Nick, uh, you lived in Turkey for two years. <clears throat> How does the Muslim uh, religion work with these people in, in uh, the democracy that was created there? Give us one more history lesson. How much time do we have? Pardon? Minutes. All right. <laughs> okay, good. Islam democracy, three minutes. <laughs> No, what I'd say about Turkey is... It's a secular uh, Muslim country. It started aggressively secular, and I think there was a general consensus that that was necessary to make democracy <clears throat> possible. Turkey parted paths with Iran, both as secular modernizing dictatorships, because Turkey had democratic elections in 1950, and that actually enabled it to uh, take a more balanced approach, bring some Islam back into the public sphere. Uh, and that, I think, made it possible for Turkey to, would have made it possible for Turkey to chart a more moderate path in a way that with Iran, you had secular dictatorship up until you had Islamic Revolution. Turkey was doing a remarkable job finding a middle ground. I think Turkey's military coup in 1980 uh, disrupted that very dangerously. Uh, and then at the point where you had uh, a secular military reestablishing power in 1980, it created, and not, but again at this point, not a kind of earnest form of secularism, but um, a military rule with a secular gloss on it, thereby creating an enormous amount of resentment amongst more pious people that Erdogan very carefully, very effectively capitalized on. And when he was then aided by an ongoing civil war with the Kurds, which generates support for many of his undemocratic anti-terror policies, and a civil war in Syria, which I think has made, given people a new sort of respect for the stability that Erdogan promises, uh, that all came together enabling Erdogan to derail Turkish democracy. That was Dr. Nick Danforth at the Council of American Ambassadors Potpourri of Diplomacy Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to CAA Live on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. 
Tweet us your thoughts on this week's episode and tag us at AMER Ambassadors with the hashtag CAA Live.